young, aggressive, and a chap can cause a great deal of trouble by charging into a situation like this. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to my festive little bit extra. Is there turkey for Christmas? So we've made it through motorcycling immortals, tinfoil robots and Charles Hawtrey just to get this far. But don't give up my friends, you can make it, we're nearly there. At this halfway point it would be rather amiss of me to avoid throwing in a monster movie. Fear not, we plumb the depths of the black and white archives to bring you... Rising unexpectedly from the sea like some sanitary product in front of you whilst you're swimming, I bring you the 1959 howler, the giant behemoth, the giant sea monster, glistening in sumptuous black and white. And yes, it's everything you never wanted, and more. And now our closing piece for the afternoon is an item of news from Cornwall. It appears that the fishing industry there has come to a complete standstill. All the beaches are clogged up with dead fish, and nobody can tell why these fish are dead. However, it has its more amusing side to it. For from Lou comes a report that a sea monster has been sighted. Um, no doubt one of the Loch Ness variety with fire breathing and all that. But it does prove one point, ladies and gentlemen. It proves that all the Scotch whiskey has not been exported to America. Dodgy model work, startled bystanders dressed as dot cotton, Dinky Toys, and the great Andre Morale. Yes, a firm favourite here at Raspberry Mivy and a footlong dog. He kicked off our first Vault of Monochrome feature back in issue one in the film Seven Days Till Noon. So you'll have to forget that performance. This is Andre Morale in full ham mode, and it is a joy to behold. Whenever there's a, a hammy line or a ridiculous piece of dialogue, he delivers it with such charm, but clearly with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek, often smirking or shooting a cheeky look to the camera as if to say, I'm really, really a classical, classical actor, actor, but, but I'm, I'm here, here for, for the, the money. money. It's always hard to underestimate how much of a draw to the, the British public he is. He was a massive success on stage in Shakespearean roles before the Second World War. He famously said he wanted to be so much more than a stage actor and wanted to demonstrate his flexibility within the acting profession. And that opportunity came really with the advent of television. Alas, none of his pre-war productions exist, but when the service resumed after the war, he was a regular face on the screen. He starred alongside Peter Cushing in the controversial television play 1984, based on the novel by George Orwell. In that, he was the overseer for Big Brother, with an air of approachability and slimy charm, laying a trap for the unwitting character played by Peter Cushing. He was able skillfully to turn his character's charms into unbridled sadism and hate, as he took great pleasure in torturing Cushing's character. In 1958, he is seen as some as the definitive Professor Bernard Quatermass in the TV production of Quatermass in the Pit. 
Interesting, though, however, he turned down the role as the lead in the first drama back in 1953, The Quatermass Experiment. And again, he was surprisingly turned down the offer to play, well, reprise the role, if you like, in the Hammers version of um, Quatermass in the Pit for the big screen. Again, in 1959, he played alongside Peter Cushing's Holmes in the Hammer production of Hound of the Baskervilles. He said he wanted to redress the image of Watson played by Nigel Bruce in the 1940s as a bumbling but lovable fool. He would delve back into the stage now and again, being married to the great Joan Greenwood. Yeah, that always helped, having the good and the great of the acting world around your house. He would often pop up during the 1970s on television, but towards the 70s his health failed him, duly to the part of he was smoking 60 a day. His last appearance was in the action television series The Professionals in 1978, uh, when he played a former spy. He would pass away that year at the young age of 69. A lot of his television legacy is lost to posterity, as the programmes of the 1950s were live, and there is enough, just enough, to serve as a tantalising morsel to let us know how good an actor he was, and how much we have lost with his passing. He is every bit as good as Cushing, or even Burton, come to that. ...and do nothing. And a thing like this, every hour counts. Interesting. I'm chairman of a royal commission on this precise subject. You don't really imagine that we sit around on our tails drinking tea, do you? No, sir. This film was made by director Ergun Laurie, who brought the American B-movie audience The Beasts from 20,000 Fathoms in 1953. And to be honest, the film during the action sequences of the monster attacking London is almost a repeat of the American version six years earlier. The monster wasn't going to be a sea monster originally, but a large blob of radioactive material that crawled along the ground. By the sounds of it, it was far too close to the um, the film X the Unknown, made by Hammer, who tried to sell the idea to Nigel Neal as the third Quatermass film. Thankfully, uh, Neal wasn't having any of that rubbish, thank you very much. The sea monster is stop motion, and is not too shoddy at that, but the idea in the storyline of radioactive infection of the sea life and the dumping of old bombs and waste matter is so outdated it was quite literally missed the boat by about six years. Because the British didn't have the capability to pull off convincing stop-motion filming, the scenes with the monster were filmed in LA studios and later edited optically into the film in London. Most of the locations for filming were by the waterside of the Thames at Woolwich and Butler's Wharf by Tower Bridge, and various footage was used of a helicopter, which strangely changed design whilst flying through the air, from an RAF dragonfly to an RAF whirlwind. Yes, Dr. Sampson. You must realize with visibilities that these that... Oh, in sight it, Peters. After all these years, we must. Look, down there on the left. Can't see anything. There is something there. A white patch. In the small fishing community of Luling, Cornwall, yet yeah, Lou does really exist. A fisherman is walking along the coastline when a dark something rises from the sea. He is struck down by a bright light, causing him to scream out in pain. 
A few hours later, he's discovered by his daughter. He's covered in terrible burns and blisters. He dies in her arms, and her friend finds a small pulsating mass of something trapped in a rock. To be fair, it's an inflatable paper bag painted silver, but it's supposed to be horrendously horrific. Never mind, moving on. Meanwhile, in London, American scientist Cairns is giving a lecture on the foolishness of dumping nuclear waste in the sea and how it could affect and destroy fish, the ecology and the ocean bed. He's been invited by Professor Bickford, played by Morale. Though disappointed by the reception by his fellow scientists, Cairns returns to his hotel to watch the television before going to the airport to fly back to the States. The Cornish fishing village. Cairns is convinced there is some kind of radioactive creature at large in the sea. Bickford is naturally slightly more cautious to this theory. But as time progresses, they photograph some fish, go out to sea in the smallest fishing vessel in the world, and find a paddle steamer has been sunk by an unknown force. As the bodies are washed up, they all have radiation burns, and there are no survivors. They return to London obviously in a jolly mood, but not in time to warn the authorities as a sea creature finally appears at Woolwich and sinks the ferry, or rather an unconvincing model of the ferry. London is put on high alert. A housing estate is evacuated for no particular reason whatsoever, and the army is called in. This is the high-tech army of 1959, still driving vehicles from 1930s and armed with weapons from the 1940s. The creature makes landfall and corrals the human occupants along the streets in what seems an eternity of squashing the odd dinky car along the way. Powerless to stop the creature, it manages to make for Westminster Bridge, where it rises up against a cardboard cutout of Big Ben before plunging into the Thames. This is not before the obligatory encounter, of course, with the high-tension electric cables, you know, the sparking and the zizzes, and the useless army. Yep, to be honest, the Salvation Army would have been better shots than the regulars in this film. Fitting a miniature submarine with a radioactive-tipped torpedo, our American hero sets out after the monster. Oh, well, come on, you weren't expecting it to be morale in the, uh, in the submarine, would you? That would be far too silly. The monster is destroyed and we are left with a door, open perhaps for a sequel. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. We have just received a report from America that mountains of dead fish are washing ashore along the coast from Maine to Florida. We now return you to our normal program. Dear God, no, please, not again. I don't think we could do that film again. No, it's awful. Although one of my favourite British monster films, with the destruction of London heavily in the vein of Gorgo or Congo, it never fails to sort of raise a wry smile. It's totally absurd and ridiculous, with characters opening the film that we never really see again, and they've been built up to mean something in this film, and they disappear after 50 minutes. A woefully ill-equipped army. In fact, the Port of London Authority is better equipped than our armed forces in London. The usual ridiculous pseudoscience explains, and yes, there is, the token eccentric paleontologist, played by the overexcitable Jack McGrown. It's not awful, but it's pretty bad. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound as bad as it did. 